On the 15th of May 1957, Billy Graham, a 38-year-old telegenic southerner, addressed a vast audience in Madison Square Garden. There are many of you here tonight that belong to a church. You live a decent moral life, but you've never really come to this experience of an encounter with God. You've never really surrendered your heart and life to Him. You've never really received Christ. Over the next 16 weeks, he spoke to hundreds of thousands of people in New York City. Is your heart right? In his seven decades in public life, Graham may well have spoken to more than 210 million, and some of his largest audiences were here in New York. For those who were there, it was an unforgettable experience. Grant Wacker was one. Although the evening seemed casual, in fact, it was very tightly orchestrated. The elements... um, may have changed in the sequencing, but but they almost always uh, involved a congregational singing uh, of old hymns that people were familiar with that evoked nostalgia, and then singing from these mass choirs. Sometimes they would uh, range into thousands, in one case 5,000 voices, and this was thrilling to hear this. Graham had burst onto the national scene in 1949 with his crusade in Los Angeles. In 1954, he'd taken his crusade to Europe. Later, he went to Africa and Asia. But wherever he was, at the heart of each event was the altar call, the climactic moment when Graham would invite people to come forward to publicly commit to a new life with Christ. Here's the way we're going to do it. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat all over this great auditorium and come and stand quietly and reverently here in front as an indication that you're receiving Christ, that you want a new heart and a new life from this moment on. And uh, then they would sign a decision card. Graham insisted that people had to do something physically uh, to symbolize their uh, their newfound faith or their renewed faith um, in, in Christ. Give your life to Christ tonight. Let him give you a new heart. Make you a new person and give you the joy and the peace that you've always longed for. Now, it'll cost you something. It doesn't come cheap. It costs Christ his blood. It costs God his son. And it'll cost you your sins. The key of his sermons was to call for a verdict, up or down, make a decision. And this instance, I think, is very modern. Uh, It's a consumer mentality here. Are you buying what I'm selling or not? Yeah. Like you make a decision to buy an automobile, a decision to buy a bar of soap. You make a decision for Christ. It starts with with this consumerist. We're here. It's show business. It's Madison Square Garden. It has like brand new escalators, which is a really important point that even Graham picks up in his in his preaching. It's a very modern space, consumer oriented, consumer shaped, and still, as many press accounts also confirm, he is able to turn this arena into a cathedral. Billy Graham seemed to be everywhere in post-war America. The confidant of presidents from Lyndon Johnson to Barack Obama, the closest the nation came to having a national pastor. For better or for worse, his film star good looks and baritone voice were woven into American life. Unlike his ersatz rivals, he largely avoided scandal. There was no cringeworthy exposure of rank hypocrisy, no convictions for fraud. Billy Graham was undoubtedly a man of the right. And yet, at least before the 21st century polarization, 
he somehow transcended partisanship. Take up the cross, take his unpopularity, take your place with him in suffering if need be. This is The Last Best Hope, a podcast from Oxford's Rothermere American Institute. My name's Adam Smith. He'll make you a new creation. So who was Billy Graham and how should we assess his legacy? To find out, I spoke to my colleague Uta Balbier, Associate Professor in American History at Oxford and the author of Alter Call in Europe, Billy Graham, Mass Evangelism in the Cold War West, and to Grant Wacker, the Gilbert T. Rowe Professor Emeritus of Christian History at Duke Divinity School. Grant's study of Graham's career was published in 2014 as America's Pastor, Billy Graham and the Shaping of a Nation. So the outer call has so many layers. I think um, you have to consider first, some get up, others don't. And of those who get up to answer this, this, this outer call, some will have spiritual reasons. But um, I also think there are other things we have to consider. So when you look at the 1950s, when Billy Graham's ministry takes off, it is the Cold War. It is a time of anxiety. It is a time of when people are looking for hope, when people are looking for answers, when they have to define their very own position in the Cold War order, in a new consumer society, and also in an increasingly globalizing world. What I also think is is very important is his use of silence. He was a master of silence. He would make that call. He would demand that this audience of 18,000 or sometimes 100,000 in a stadium, that they be stone silent. And they usually were. And then he said, I will stand here. I will wait. And you have to get a sense of the... the uh, uh, of the visuals of this, uh, Graham was tall, lean, erect, and he would simply stand there. And he said, we'll say things like, he said, the buses will wait. Your friends will wait. And I will wait. And a lo- and he would wait. And then the numbers would grow and they would grow. And there's a certain amount of, um, uh, shall we say, crowd affirmation. First one would get up and then another. And there would be counselors who would come with them. And so you get a sense, a visual of large numbers of people uh, coming forward and forward. And then after he felt that they had come in a large, large enough numbers, then he would say, then let's bow our heads and let's have a brief prayer of a commitment to Christ. Let's talk a little bit more then about Graham the man and where he came from. He was a farm boy, North Carolina, not especially well-educated You've already said, Grant, that he was tall and lean and staggeringly handsome. Tell me, Grant, a little bit about his upbringing, his early influences, his own spiritual journey. What led him into this life? The most remarkable thing about the young Graham is how unremarkable he was. Uh, he was not a terrible student. He was not an exceptional student. He was a, just a very ordinary C-plus student in high school and in college. And he felt called. He first moved into Youth for Christ. This is where he began. He first made his trip to Europe through Youth for Christ. And uh, they would bring evangelists like Graham to meetings to try to um, minister to uh, returned servicemen and some service women, And... Uh, and it was a lot of entertainment. I mean, a tremendous amount of entertainment. It's spectacular. But then again, they would 
try to bring these young people to a sense of a, a vocation and purpose and embrace Christ. So this movement spreads around the United States and Europe, and Graham is, is a key part of it. He's the first traveling evangelist. And this gives him exposure, and I would say it's what gives him a taste of what is available outside the United States. Youth for Christ uh, keeps him from being just a parochial farm boy. He sees the world and begins to think in the early 50s that God has called him um, to proclaim a message of the gospel to the entire world. He moves forward from there. Billy Graham was by no means the first nationally famous evangelist. Were there early influences, you think? Were there models that were available to him or to his parents' generation, which affected his his work? So Billy Graham's ministry grows out of the very long tradition of American revivalism, which actually goes back to the first awakening of the 18th century. Not much is, not much is changing since, since Wesley, but, uh, he, he adopts this ministry to the 1950s. I think that is the innovation. We already see with Billy Sunday, of course, a very entertainment oriented revival a style which, of course, has to do with the rise of media culture, the embrace of sports metaphors. All that is already there, but Billy Graham brings it to perfection. And I think um, one of the reasons is his background as a salesman. I think we can't underestimate that he did this short stint as a student um, selling brushes, which kind of opens his eyes to the whole world of marketing. And so in 1954, this young, good-looking American preacher finds himself in London. And um, over the course of 12 weeks, uh, 2 million people will attend these revival meetings. That's an incredible. Can we just pause on that? 2 million people out of what? Out of a UK population in 1954 of what? 40 million, 45 million? I'm, I'm guessing. I mean, it must have been around that, right? And that's an extraordinary proportion of the national population. How did he manage that? So the the London crusade at Harringay Arena was a massive operation, which set in basically the invitation came two years before it actually started in 1954, which gave the local organizers the time to prepare. And a lot of preparation went into the into spiritual means. There were prayer groups formed. Churches began to organize for this massive revival meeting of 12 weeks. But of course, there was also modern marketing. There was fundraising, there was the question, um, who is going to pay for what is actually going to happen there in, in, um, in London. So this is what is happening for two years. And then Billy Graham himself steps off this cruise liner in Southampton and goes to London and he finds the right language to address Great Britain in 1954. In his preaching, there are a lot of references to the Cold War, one could argue that he helps people to find their place in a new world order. Um, there is still austerity in Britain and still there is this American preacher slash prophet who comes over showing them you can be well-dressed, you can be a Christian and a consumer at the same time. Mm -hmm. But the mm -hmm. orchestration of the events was incredibly powerful. And what was also so powerful was the iconography around Billy Graham. I mean, the newspapers jumped at Billy Graham. They shaped this very modern image that we have of him. And this image sold so well. One of the things I'm, I'm hearing from you both it's, is Billy Graham is about modernity, he's about capitalism, he's about a new confidence in capitalism, 
in the you know the very recent aftermath of the Great Depression and the Second World War, and obviously especially in the British context, are still rationing in place when Billy Graham's coming to London. So he's he's offering something that's that's glamorous. He's he's wearing well cut suits. He's it's it's the acme of of modernity as it seemed the the white heat of technology that's coming britain's way in the in the late 50s you've never had it so good three years away um this kind of sense of of optimism that's associated with you know people's new council houses and people getting tvs for the first time and somehow or other billy graham is in, inserting himself into that new capitalist uh, optimism now the question i have then about that is is I'm just wondering whether this cuts against the way in which we often think about the place of religion in Western societies, especially perhaps Western European societies, more than the United States, which is, of course, the endless, supposedly endless growth of secularism and the perpetual decline in fits and starts of organised religion. And I'm just wondering, how does Billy Graham challenge our our narratives of the place of religion in 20th century uh in 20th century british life if you want to talk about it particularly in relation to britain but you can talk more widely if you wish so one observer um in i think in germany in 1954 um writes about billy graham under the headline billy graham is a question to the church and i think um that is an invitation to us to think about what role billy graham played mm-hmm. in um the revival, which was going on in the United States. We know that. We know the numbers. But then also some colleagues argue there was a religious revival taking place in the United Kingdom in 1954. And to a certain degree, we see a revival of religion even in Germany, where he also went on his first European tour at the very same time. And it is fascinating to see how also in Europe, the Archbishop of Canterbury attends the last evening of the London Crusade in 1954, very leading Protestant bishops in Germany are willing to support this preacher. And they're saying we may not agree theologically, but we have to agree that we are all looking for a response to secularization that is underway. And I think another aspect I would like to add is that Secularization is often discussed in the context of churches. And yes, people may stop going to church, but that doesn't mean that people are not asking really important questions about spiritual fulfillment, asking about their their place in the broader scheme mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. things. Right. And the beauty of the Billy Graham ministry is that he answered these questions in their living rooms, by using television, by orchestrating these vast revival meetings. So for those who don't read theology, he was an opportunity to navigate these really, really important questions. And I think that is where a lot of the strength of his ministry was, be way beyond the actual conversions of people. I would add two points. Uh, first, uh, his modernity underscore that uh, when he died, the Guardian carried a headline that said behind the curve of history. Uh, that is one headline that is 180 degrees wrong. There is nobody who could have been more in tune with the curve of history. Uh, the New York Times described him when he died as a career of missed opportunities. Well, that says far more about the elite media than it does about what actually happened historically. It was a career of exploited opportunities. Secondly, it's hard to think about Billy Graham without the rise of communism. People were afraid of the atom bomb. They were afraid of the fact that Russians had atomic weapons. 
and he had, he addressed those fears. So in addition to modernity, we have to look at an acute sense of relevance throughout. Communism represented, a, obviously, a threat to the capitalist consumerist society that Billy Graham celebrated, and it represented an antithesis to the kind of spiritual um, life that Billy Graham uh, wanted everybody to share in. Um, but his anti-communism that Grant refers to uh, led him, um, for example, in the late 1960s and early 70s to a fervent, fervent support for the American war in, in Vietnam, didn't it, Uta? So in the context of, a, we've been talking about him in the 1950s, but if you fast forward to the late 60s, a highly polarized United States with people in large numbers on the streets protesting the war, but everybody knew that Billy Graham was big mates with Richard Nixon and was encouraging him to push even harder, if anything, in Vietnam than they were willing to go. Was that a moment, Uta, when Billy Graham's capacity to present himself as somehow transcending denomination and, and partisanship was severely challenged? Did he at that point become a partisan figure, a polarizing figure even? And if not, why not? We have to consider Billy Graham was clearly a child of his times in the sense of that he, he grew to, po to popularity, to fame in this Cold War order. There's another thing we have to consider, and that is the religious background he's coming from. He's growing out of this Protestant fundamentalist tradition, which tends to imagine the world in the forces of goodness versus the forces of evil, which I think shapes the ministry and adapts so easily to, to communism. I mean, Billy Graham, the Cold War was made for Billy Graham, but Billy Graham and his religion was also made for the Cold War. It's the perfect symbiosis. And it's really interesting to see how this message of Cold War revival, return to Christianity, takes hold in Europe in the 1950s. But then something really important, of course, is happening with the Vietnam War, which is raising really, really important questions about this um, Atlantic alliance in the realm of religion. And when we look at, interestingly enough, Billy Graham comes back in the 60s. So in 1954, um, the, the stadia are packed in, uh, in London and also in Berlin. But then when he comes back in 1966 to both countries, there is protest. There are really important questions being raised about where, why is Billy Graham so close to Nixon? Why is he endorsing the Vietnam War? Everybody knows that he does. Um, and there is not much forgiveness in Europe for that. And I, I mean, one point I try to make in the book is that it is this moment of the 1950s, which brings the religious landscape of the United States, the United Kingdom and Germany so close together, much closer than we usually consider it looking at this transatlantic divide in religion. But I would argue with the same force that in the 1960s, this consensus falls apart. And one of the important reasons is the Vietnam War. But of course, another reason is an increasing, now indeed, secularization taking ground in Europe to another degree um, than it does in the United States, which is also breaking up the alliance that Billy Graham was able to forge earlier on. But I think the most important thing to keep to keep in mind is we're not here to judge. Billy Graham was a child of the Cold War. I was never surprised by the position he took on the Vietnam War. Fast forward to 1982. Uh, Billy Graham attended a nuclear disarmament conference in Moscow, and he becomes a major proponent of disarmament, 
One of the key lines in his speech then is he said, the United States and the Soviet Union are like two little boys standing in a bathtub filled with gasoline playing with matches. And he insisted that we were on the brink of destroying civilization. Now, the point is, is that Graham was way ahead of the mainline media at that point in the early 80s. Now, what does this tell us about the larger story of Billy Graham? He changed. He was a man in motion. And who he was in the 1930s and 40s is 50s is not who he was in the 1980s. He did not always change in a linear direction either. I think in the 1960s, he moved, if you say, back into a more conservative direction, particularly in matters of race. He became, um, he became frightened by uh, uh, black power. But on the whole, moving from, I will stick with this, center-right uh, to a position that maybe I'd say, pretty centrist, ne- never, well, in some instances, like on the question of disarmament, he, he moved center-left for sure. Also, it's important to remember, too, that in retrospect, it may seem that the Vietnam War was a creation of the far right. Well, it wasn't. In the time, in the late 50s and 60s, uh, this was a war that was shouldered by very popular American presidents. Yeah, it was was a mainstream liberal liberal project, of course, wasn't it? Execution. Uta, yes, come in. When I think what is really, really interesting to keep in mind is that probably the attractiveness of the ministry was how Billy Graham was able to keep his distance to the religious right. He never preached with the aggressiveness of a Jerry Falwell or the list is getting longer and longer. I always saw his ministry significantly more dedicated to bringing people together, not polarizing them. And I think that helps us a little bit to think beyond Billy Graham as a child of his time, who was, of course, he, I mean, he was a proponent and shaped by the Cold War. I was not surprised by the position he took on the Vietnam War. Jerry Falwell, who you mentioned there, is a really interesting person to bring up as a point of contrast or comparison. Um, so Jerry Falwell, more than any other figure, is associated in the, with the 1970s rise of the religious right and with the moral majority which was an actual organization rather than just a slogan um which is obviously hugely influential in the development and the trajectory of the republican party over the last 40 or 50 years and what you're saying which is really really important is that we need to think about billy graham it's too easy perhaps to associate billy graham with those many televangelists who um appeared on American TV screens in the 1970s and 80s and 90s. What you're saying is that he steered a, a different uh, path. And and that um, might explain why, of course, he retained. He was very close with Richard Nixon, as we've said, but he was also the spiritual advisor, often described, of Democratic presidents as well as of Republican presidents, including up to um, Barack Obama. Graham's closest personal friend outside his immediate associates, his closest personal friend was Lyndon Johnson. And when we read the correspondence between Graham and Lyndon Johnson, these are men who wrote in their correspondence, I love you. So, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. But to go on to Jerry Falwell, when the religious right rose in the late 70s and 80s, they tried to bring Graham into the ranks, and he explicitly refused to do so. It wasn't just that he just shied away. He explicitly said, 
politics does not belong in the pulpit. I learned my lesson with Nixon, and I'm going to keep politics out of the pulpit as much as I can. Now, he sometimes fell off the wagon. He he didn't have a perfect record there. Uh, but at least he tried to avoid that kind of hard-right partisanship uh, in the in in the in the latter third of of his career we have to take it seriously billy graham was an evangelical christian i think it is it would be very unfair to expect him to to support the sexual liberalization which took place in the 1960s he had a very clear position of on roe versus wade a very clear position i'm sure on same sex marriage but that is okay because he is an evangelical christian but still i never saw him as this orthodox exclusive fundamentalist figure he is the one who is changing He is the one who is able to reach, uh, who is willing to reach out to Catholics, to different Protestant denominations. And I think that explains the strength of the ministry, that it was not this fire and brimstone ministry. It was about something that would bring people together and, and in the end, on a global scale. Privately anti-Semitic, though, in his recorded conversations with Richard Nixon, is, is that something you just would put down to time and place and context? Adam, in all honesty, a Southerner. And I think Grant will say it, but I'm going to say it first. One of the major weaknesses of Billy Graham was that he had to be loved. He really, he basked in the feeling of being with the famous and those in power. And to such a degree that very often he tended to, to adopt a language. Echo their bigotries. Echo their bigotries. I think the significance of that conversation is not anti-Semitism, but rather that he was a sycophant of Richard Nixon. There is no other sign of anti-Semitism anywhere in his life or his ministry, but there are tons of signs of his desire to win a claim, especially from people in high power. Last question to both of you. Billy Graham died at the age of 99 in 2018, and he was lauded and praised across the spectrum, the Guardian aside, perhaps. How do you think he will be viewed, if you can imagine this, in another uh, 20 or, or, or 30 years? How would you evaluate his, his big significance in American or even global history? I think that his significance will grow. I am uh, struck by the fact that since he's died, there have been five major books including Uddas, that have come out or are coming out from major university presses. There is a sense that the long-range trends in American evangelical religion and more broadly religion lie with Billy Graham and that long 60-year trajectory of a very public ministry. Yes, and I think the question that Billy Graham posed how modern can religious be? What is the, should the relationship be between consumerism and religion? How do religion and globalization correspond to each other? What, what political position will religion take in the future um, within the party spectrum, but maybe also just in public discourse? All these questions are still alive. And I, what I liked about studying Billy Graham is it was a wonderful opportunity to think about those questions, not just back in the 50s, but also today. And I hope we're going to use him again 100 years down the line to maybe find answers to the very same questions. Uta Balbier and Grant Wacker. 
two leading scholars of American religion, and in particular of Billy Graham, the greatest modern evangelist of them all. In drawing people to Christ, Billy Graham drew them to America. And in drawing them to America, he drew them to Christ. The photos of the 1954 London Crusade show a startling contrast between the good-looking young man in an American suit on stage and the grey-clad crowd in front of him. Billy Graham must have seemed like a technicolour vision of American modernity. He offered them, in every sense, their last best hope. And you've been listening to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from Oxford's RAI that examines America from the outside in. The producer is Emily Williams, and I'm Alan Smith. Goodbye. <laughs>